BBC Five Live. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome along to the podcast. It's not Simon and Mark this week. It is Clarice. It is. It's me. And me, uh, Edith. So we, we had a fabulous time on the show. It was great, which you'll hear in a second. But before we get to this week's show, um, we had a brilliant email that came in, um, which probably couldn't read out live on the show for various, well, for obvious oh. reasons, which we Okay, I'm intrigued now. now. <laughs> the subject is Code of Conduct, Fifty Shades. Mm -mm. Mm. Callum in Edinburgh I'm writing to report a breaking of the code of conduct quite unlike any I've heard before a friend of mine works in a beautiful independent cinema in Edinburgh on Valentine's evening he was witness to a heinous Fifty Shades related act Oh, I'm really nervous. The screen was packed with many excited viewers eagerly anticipating the latest encounter of this safe, predictable romance romp my friend, the usher, was gleefully cleaning the state-of-the-art corn popper when suddenly his attention was drawn to a concerned customer appearing from screen one. The customer in question breathlessly stated she had witnessed a couple undertaking an act in the back row of the cinema which is simply unsuitable to discuss on a flagship film programme. If kissing breaks the code of conduct, the activity taking place in this cinema takes it to another level. This would have been bad enough Suddenly, the screen one doors flew open. One half of the couple in question appeared without the top half of their clothing. They looked my dear friend directly in the eye and asked for directions to the nearest toilet. It's safe to say he couldn't believe what he had witnessed. The couple then left without even finishing the rest of the film, which, based on Mark's reviews, fair enough. Best wishes, Callum in Edinburgh. I am genuinely speechless <laughs> because, you know, there's... The usual code of conduct that, you know, mm -hmm. breakage that you might sort of know how to react to, but I don't know what I would do in that situation. Ooh, well, it's, yeah, me neither. It's a lot. Again, a better <laughs> plot and, you know, than Fifty Shades Freedom itself. Yeah, that okay. was, I was gripped, but terrified. Absolutely <laughs> terrified. Well, to bring um, us uh, all back down and calm us down, here's this week's show. Welcome to the show. It's Clarice and Edith in for Mark and Simon with you until four o'clock this afternoon. Clarice, great to have you with us today. Thank great you. to be with you today. Yes, I'm so happy to be with you. Uh, plenty of films to talk about this week. In fact, loads of stuff to talk about. Yeah, we've got Ladybird, Shape of Water, Black Panther, Father Figures. It's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of us <laughs> ones. There's a lot of very good ones and maybe one not so good one in there, mm. but we'll see. <laughs> could it be? Uh, and our special guest is Saoirse Ronan, star of Ladybird. You can hear my conversation with her, followed by Clarice's review in about half an hour's time. And if you want to join in with the show, you can get in touch with us in all the usual ways. Email at mail at bbc.co.uk, text us 85058. You'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. We're at Wit Entertainment and there's cameras everywhere so you can see. There's no hiding us, basically. There is no hiding. <laughs> Before we crack into the top 10, I just wanted to talk briefly about BAFTA which of course is this weekend yes. um, Joanna Lumley hosting which is great news um, and a, just so many great films I think up for so many brilliant categories and there's a real mix I think of smaller British films as well as those kind of big films like things like Darkest Star that are still in the top 10 things like that it's good representation yeah I mean usually when it comes to award season there will always be like one film that is my film of the year that I will be rooting <laughs> for like it's a sports team and this year I'm really <laughs> struggling I don't know whose team I'm on because there's such a, a good array of films I, I don't want to choose one because 
And I feel bad. I don't want to root against the other ones. Well, so. there's there's so many great ones out yeah. there as well. And, and so much great talent as well. The EUIs and Star, which is just showcasing some great talent yeah. this year. But yeah, it's a credible lineup. I mean, Daniel Kaluuya and Timothee Chalamet, Tessa Thompson. It's Yeah, it's a little too much choice, if anything. It's, yeah, it's a tough decision. Yeah, as well. <laughs> uh, and I think as well, there's going to be a presence on the red carpet as well for, for Time's Up, um, following yesterday's announcement of that um, BAFTA, BFI and Key Industries uh, organisations with their set principles, which is great and a kind of really good platform for important discussion as well. Yeah, I think for me, having the conversation is the most important part and keeping that conversation going. So it's been really important for me to see it continuing from event to event from to event and just see that level of solidarity I think has been really powerful All right, well listen you can watch the big show on uh, Sunday night 9 o'clock Joanna Lumley hosting and get excited with the red carpet coverage 5 o'clock on the BAFTA Facebook page presented by Dermot O'Leary and moi very much looking forward to that got my thermal ready it's normally the coldest night of the year yeah I never quite understand why it's (sighs) February (laughs) Uh, right eyes down your first number in the top 10 then and we start at 14 (laughs) as you do Um, at 14 then is the 1517 to Paris Uh, I've got an email about this. Should we just start with that? Yeah, I think so. Daniel Hardis says, well, we didn't make the top 10, somewhat mercifully, but I thought I'd give my two pennies worth on the 1517 to Paris. With this film, Clint Eastwood has managed to make genuine heroism into a tedious drama that looks like an extended travel programme with a fight scene at the end. The dialogue was so wooden I could have made a spice rack with it. I think I'll take the 7.35 to central London, my usual morning commute instead. I agree with the travel programme part of that. It's an absolutely bizarre film and almost doesn't feel like a Clint Eastwood film. It feels like one of those when you're scrolling through Netflix and you reach the bottom row and it's like the dredges of of whatever Netflix can find. It's, It's strange and I think also the big thing with this film is to have the actual heroes who were involved in the real incident, which was stopping a terror attack on a train to Paris. And I think it's a really strange decision because it doesn't really add anything to the film it doesn't give you any extra insight I was sort of worried for them the whole way through the film because they're having to retrace what I imagine was quite a traumatic experience yeah so I just uh, I just feels utterly purposeless that film all right well from uh number 14 we go to 13 actually in the mercy which we've got a couple of correspondence on uh first up neil mcrobert says i'm writing in having had the dire misfortune to be subjected to the mercy by my dad who at 81 years old should have developed greater discernment when choosing films for our weekly cinema trip i love the fact that they go to the cinema every week that's so great Mm. for the first 30 landlocked minutes i was on board no pun intended colin firth managed to convince me ever the dreamer that his venture was a good idea i turned to my dad and i whispered i'm gonna love this how wrong was I? For the rest of the interminable running time, the film consistent, consisted solely of Rachel Weisz being dutiful, David Thewlis being slimy and Colin Firth looking like a grumpy vicar whose pedalo won't steer right. It was dreadfully ponderous. Early in the film, Donald Crowher says of the race, it sounds profoundly heroic. So did the film. But rather than heroism, inspiration or even profound endurance, the mercy was just a damp squib that seemed quite appropriately to have no idea what to do with itself once it got to the sea. Uh, Daniel Pacey says like Mark I didn't know the story behind the mercy unfortunately I'd seen the trailer which basically gave everything away in two and a half minutes as a result watching the film was more of a dull and disappointment experience than it may have been otherwise it did not float my boat (laughs) nor would appear to have floated many others given that it didn't even make the top ten 
Uh, and then Christopher Rand. Thank you so much for getting in touch, Christopher. The mercy was slightly uncomfortable towards the end, as intended. Uh, but the real tearjerker was the screen fading to black and the huge caption, original score by Johan Johansson. What a terrible loss to cinema and the world of music. Amazing work on Arrival, Sicario and the theory of everything. How I'd love to have heard is unused take on the soundtrack of Blade Runner 2049. Um, incredibly sad news last weekend at the... The yeah. surprise passing of Johan. Um, and we've had quite a lot of correspondence, a couple of pieces from you guys. We'd love to get into that properly, which we're going to do in the podcast to give it the time that it, that it really deserves. So we'll talk about Johan in the podcast this week. What do you think about the Mercy? I, I think actually bringing up Johan is interesting because um, I, I saw it this weekend after hearing the news and it really struck me how much he contributed to that film because, you know, it's not an incredible piece of filmmaking. I guess I do agree with a lot of those views, but I think his contribution is so good at representing the feeling of isolation that you get when you are in the middle of the ocean. You just know that there is not a single person for miles and miles and miles and that it can feel very still and quiet and isolated, even if the sea is roaring in your ears. I think that aspect of the film I actually found quite powerful, but I agree with a lot of the other points. Okay, uh, let's get into the top 10 then and we'll make our way through at 10 then. We have The Post, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. It's, what was it you said about it could have been a film nominated for an award in... In like 1998. <laughs> it's very classic. It's a timeless piece of filmmaking. I mean, it's Steven Spielberg doing that thing he does very well of visual storytelling. Mm. You know, he can in one shot tell half of the story and so it's very good on that aspect but I think when we have an Oscar race that is filled with so many uh, very modern very groundbreaking pieces of cinema I can understand why it got left behind a little bit yeah, I think that it's it's also as well, though, I think that we, you know, the, the names Spielberg, Streep and Hanks, we kind of take for granted in a way as well. And it's good. you kind of go, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, you expect it to be of a standard <laughs> yeah. and it is. And we are spoiled. We shouldn't do that. Yeah. We should be so thankful that yeah. Spielberg is still making movies for us. <laughs> exactly. He might just stop out of spite. Oh, no. Like, you won't pay attention to me anymore. I'm just gonna... Don't do a Daniel Daly or something. <laughs> yeah, please, exactly. Please. Exactly. He might do that. Uh, number nine, Jumanji, welcome to the jungle. I went to the cinema to see this with my uh, with my nine-year-old and a couple of his mates, actually. And oh, there is something really special about going to the cinema and seeing it with the intended audience as well. And just the, their reaction to some of the gags was was kind of absolutely hilarious. And the, the fact that now they only want to listen to Guns N' Roses' Welcome to the Jungle, it deserves to be in the top ten in my eyes, I think. Uh, one of the big award contenders and winners already, of course, still in the top ten, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. What mm, I'm a little bit on the side that's conflicted about Quiet. it. I'm sorry to say. I wow. I think it's the, the much talked about letters scene, which we don't need to go into, yeah. but I d didn't think the writing in that scene was as good as it should have been. But on the other hand, the thing that I really loved about Three Billboards, which I guess a lot of people aren't really mentioning, is the relationship between Frances McDormand and her son, played by Lucas Hedges, I think is beautiful because they're at different stages in grief and the son just kind of wants to move on with his life. Yeah. And she's still, you know, obsessed with it. She's still gripped by it. And I, yeah, I really appreciated that part of the film. Did that one scene then ruin the whole film almost for you, do you think? Almost. Okay. I, I hate to say it, but I think from that scene and sort of what happens afterward, when there's so much nuance in so many other scenes of the film, to have something that feels so obvious, so heavy handed, it, it kind of completely took me out of everything. Yeah. 
Uh, all right, three billboards outside Edmund, Missouri, still in the top ten. Number eight, will it be picking up some BAFTAs this weekend? I probably think it might get at least one. Uh, I don't know anything, by the way. That's just a complete guess. Uh, number seven, uh, Den of Thieves, which I heard has already been, there's already been a sequel penned for this one as well. Wow, that is fast. Yeah, fast. It's only been in the, the top ten for two weeks. It's like, my goodness. Uh, number six, then, we have uh, The Maze Runner, Death Cure. Which, it's strange to have one of these teen dystopian things coming out so far down the line. I think we'd all forgotten that genre existed to a degree. So it feels a little bit like a fish out of water in one sense. But I think it's really overlong. It's so overlong and it doesn't deserve to be that long, especially if you're having to return to this world that you've left for so many years. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, I think it's got a few little visual tricks that I quite like. Yeah. So There's always got to be this constant feed though of that genre though at some point, isn't there? You know, whether it's the Twilight movies or, or the Hunger Games, that kind of thing of this yeah. kind of, that type of thing. But like you say, there was so much time between that it's, it's kind of like they're almost trying to waste time till the next thing comes along. Yeah, you're almost like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. I remember now. (laughs) Uh, Number six then in the top ten. Number five, this has been in the top ten five weeks. Darkest Hour. Audiences are loving this film. Yeah, I... I feel a little bit on the same side as Mark did about it. I know I'm coming in again with another negative opinion, but... It's um, constructive. That's good. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I th- I do think Gary Ullman is spectacular in that role and mm. I can definitely see that he will probably, very probably win the Oscar for it. But I did agree with Mark on the level that it's such a simple way to approach that topic and what I really felt like it lacked from the film is... The idea of the sacrifice, like the sacrifices that were made by making that decision of going to war, I found it quite telling that at no point during the film do they actually mention the number of casualties that came out of this. I I don't remember any kind of mention of numbers, which I know seems like a really small thing, but I just wanted to feel that weight, that weight of human life in every step they took and every decision they took, which I just think would have pushed it a little further into something a little bit more weighty, I guess. Uh, I, it's interesting because when you hear Christopher Nolan talk about Dunkirk, he kind of says the opposite in terms of he didn't want the film at any point to cut back to a war room and, you know, these generals and, and people, you know, of, of higher authority making the decisions. He wanted it to feel about those people on the land, on the sea and in the air. And kind of weirdly, I think Joe Wright, who I don't think is getting the recognition he deserves for this film as well, because I think it's great, is that he, you know, he kind of forgot it was a film about Churchill when he was making it because it was about this man. So I guess maybe in, you know, not in any way trying to kind of make excuses for that not being explained or 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 included in it is that because it was more of a piece about a man rather than it being about that kind of situation but um I love the stuff as well with Lily James and Gary Oldman I thought that was a really great kind of yeah, relationship I think dynamic she was great. really yeah. good it re- I really felt like we kind of getting to see a bit more depth to her as an actress I think she's great but I think this role really allowed a bit more of that as well yeah and it's good to have that sort of audience perspective because she is almost the, the audience so yeah interacting with this man with so much weight and legacy yeah. around him like the, vi- the victory sign moment in the corridor and stuff where she corrects him it's just a lovely lovely moment in the film yeah. really great uh, right then Darkest Hour still in the top 10 number 5 at number 4 uh, Early Man the late Latest uh, film we have from Ardman. Great email from this from uh, Barney in Bury St Edmunds, who's 13. He says, Dear Super Standins. 
Fantastic. Aww, That's pretty I good, like that, that, yeah. Uh, I've just returned from a viewing of Early Man with my grandma, dad and two brothers. Judging by the laughs that resonated from us around the cinema, it was fantastic. Whilst not as good as Curse of the Were Rabbit, it is utterly hilarious with an excellent voice cast and the script is perfect. Though it slightly lost its way with the plot towards the end, the laughs made up for it. A thoroughly enjoyable and funny experience. I can't wait to see what Nick Park and Ardman do next. I think what I find always so interesting about stop motion animation is that the amount of time it takes to make three seconds yes. is that I feel like everything Ardman does is so well thought out and so carefully placed that, you know, no joke is wasted. Everything is where it should be and, and it almost feels like you just can't go wrong with these films. I, I feel like there's no room for failure. It just is always going to be quality product in a way. It's such an art, isn't it? It's in the, it could almost be if you took the voices away, which are such a big part of these creations. But like you say, the animation is so pristine and beautiful and brilliant and funny that if you listen to it silently, you would still get something from it because I think it's done so well. Yeah, and the, the amount of slapstick that I, I just amazes me that you can take a bit of plasticine or silicon and, and just create this incredible, like classic Charlie Chaplin-esque moment with it. I think, yeah, I'm always wowed by it. I like as well how they've taken, you know, really well-known actors and actresses like um, uh, Maisie Williams and Eddie Redmayne. And you can't really... You don't if you didn't know it was them and the, you wouldn't know yes, you the, know, you're not recognizable. <laughs> the Tom Hiddleston French accent was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> really good. Uh, Early Man at four and and Coco still in there at number three. What an exceptional film! I Pixar has this thing of giving me genuine like emotional crises. Um, I just the idea within it of you know this the second death, the idea that you die and then there's another moment when the last person that remembers you suddenly forgets you and and then you're gone forever I actually couldn't sleep that night because I was thinking over it so much I just it is the most terrifying thought to me and I can't believe it came out of a Pixar film I'm (laughs) I'm amazed I'm amazed they seem to just they have this this wonderful ability to tap into to humanity really I think is what they do so brilliantly um Obviously aided by in Coco with Michael uh, Giacchino's incredible score and those uh, original compositions as well. Part of you know, and it's I think it's become the biggest selling film in Mexican history ever. It's just yeah, it's great yeah, because it's such a such a celebration and that's yeah. so lovely to see. It's really nice. It's it's really interesting as well that they within Pixar they've adopted the the, the whole premise of celebrating the dead within the building. So they have it's celebration day, the dead within Pixar now, where they bring in relatives, loved ones, favourite food and items. That's so nice. That's right, because I grew up in Arizona, so we also kind of celebrated that um, because it was everywhere around you. And yeah, it's just, it's such a a wonderful holiday. It really affects you, I think, in a way. Brilliant. Well, loads of you still going to see that. It's been in the charts for four weeks. This one, seven weeks it's been in the top ten. The Greatest Showman. Uh, I've got a couple of emails. i got one here actually from... Chris, who says, uh, after listening to Mark's verdict on The Greatest Showman, I decided to take my daughter, 10, going on 21, to see it on Friday evening. And almost always I am in disagreement with Mark and Simon. The music was catchy, the drama was gripping, and I only registered the CGI because I'd heard Mark talk about it earlier in the day. Bearing in mind the film has been out for weeks, the cinema was largely full, and we left dancing down the aisle to the amusement of the rest of the cinema goers. I'm sure there are technical reasons why the film isn't quite right, but let yourself go. Get caught up in the magic. 
says Chris. I, I, I agree. It's mm. not the type of film I would choose to go and see. Um, I was totally swept up in it. I think I might have cried at least once. Um, and yeah. What, yeah. what did you... I'm, I'm glad it exists in a strange way because I think to have that variety on the cinema landscape, I don't want it to just be like action films constantly and, and to have musicals become more of this mainstream thing. I hope we see a lot more. This is what I'm really, really hoping comes out of The Greatest Showman's success is I just want to see musicals every month, musicals everywhere. I love I love musicals. Well, this was greenlit before La La Land came out. Yeah, which is interesting because yeah. I think La La Land definitely boosted its popularity in a way because La La Land really brought the phenomena back in a yeah. way. I think people, after seeing that movie, you know, remembered how great a musical can be. Like, you know, something like Singing in the Rain, how uplifting a film like that can be. And I, I definitely don't think The Greatest Showman was perfect. I I sort of half enjoyed it, half was annoyed by it, but I'm just <laughs> I'm just glad it exists, is yeah. all I can say. Um, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. What I'd like to see is a, 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 a spin-off from Paddington 2 uh, of Hugh Grant's musical following the closing credits of Paddington 2. It's got to happen, yeah. surely. Okay, I actually need that right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, at this very moment. Someone make it happen immediately. Um, right, Fifty Shades Freed. It is the number one film. Do you want to start? <laughs> I, okay, I I gave up on this franchise the moment in the first film that he broke into her house after they'd broken up, I just, I stepped away and I went, this is not an okay way for any man to act. And I don't want any part of this. And so I just, I think there's nothing that Fifty Shades Freed could do to get me back on board. <laughs> and there was nothing that it did to get me back on board. It was just, I feel like the thing with the Fifty Shades franchise is that it's less about the idea of the perfect man and more about the idea of money because all these films are just glamour. It's private planes, it's private mm. boats, it's huge apartments. Like I feel like Christian Grey could just be a stack of money and it would <laughs> be the same effect. I, can, I think that if Sam Taylor Johnson had been allowed to make the film that she was asked to make with the first film, we would have had a very different series of films. Yeah, because there are touches in that first film that are quite That artful. scene in the office with the red. Yes, that, yeah. That's the one scene that, that you can tell that, that that was her scene. She's been yeah. allowed to film that and make yeah. that the way she wanted. There's like something in there that you're like, oh, yeah. okay, this is interesting. Yeah, Dakota's in charge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, so loads of correspondence. Uh, Karen Richardson, who says, not angry, but disappointed that Fifty Shades is number one, not least because my lovely 17-year-old son who works at our local cinema had to put up with a steady stream of intoxicated women oh, making no. lewd suggestions to him during his shift. Needless to say, I shall not be seeing it. Oh, no. Oh, man. That That's is awful. Stressful. Really stressful. Uh, Jennifer Provis says 50 Shades Freed is a snooze fest in almost every way conceivable. But more importantly, Christian Grey's not a nice man. If anyone interrupted my ice cream consumption, the way he interrupted Anna's, oh, they'd have a very angry Jenny to deal with. Thanks very much, That's Jenny. fantastic. <laughs> I fully agree. Uh, and Joanna. Sorry, Joanne. She says, uh, last night, my equally excited best friend and I took ourselves to see the final instalment of the Fifty Shades trilogy. And as fans, 
we were not disappointed. Uh, let's be serious about these films. They're for entertainment purposes only. They're never going to win a Golden Globe or an Oscar. But for the idea of sheer escapism, they hit the nail right on the head. For two hours, I didn't have to engage my brain too much, but instead I could sit back and enjoy the easy flowing story, which at seven months pregnant is a joy in itself. I enjoyed the books and yet they're not Shakespeare or Austen, but again, they're entertaining. I enjoyed the pace of the film, enjoyed the chemistry between Dornan and Johnson and truly feel the movie rounded up the story perfectly. I may be in the minority with my thoughts, which I'm fine with. And so you should be, Joanne. She says, Joanne, all about the entertainment, Kelty in Glasgow. Yeah, I think if I had been able to get over the breaking into the house thing, maybe I'd feel that way, but yeah. I, just, I just couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> there was no getting past that. No getting past that. <laughs> uh, right, it's not in the top 10, but we've had loads of correspondence uh, from you guys on it. Uh, at number 11, Phantom Thread. What should take a fan of I mean, I adore Paul Thomas Anderson. I think he's one of the best, or at least one of the most interesting directors we have at the moment, because each of his films do feel very distinct, but there's always this, this thread going mm. through them, and there's a, a kind of mischievousness about him that I I really enjoy and there is something mischievous about Phantom Thread because it seduces you in with this very classic romance of you know London 1950s beautiful dresses and then it kind of has a little twist yeah. little twists in the middle Yes, Leslie Manville as well. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, um, yes. John Turner says, Hello, I'm not sure where the discussion is on Phantom Thread, but I saw it last night and can't get out of my head. The middle section especially is one of, if not the best pieces of cinema I've ever seen. I say the best because I couldn't see what they were doing. Usually there's some formula or structure things are hung upon, but this was like the first time you try really good food, see a tailored suit or get a ride in a nice car. It makes you happy things like this exist and also make you realise what all the fuss is about. Still don't know how the did it but the dialogue visuals and sound were like an immersive experience at times it's hard to write about without sounding pretentious but it would be a shame not to give credit where credit is due um grant who says dear substitute teachers says i've seen phantom thread three times now and my love for it only grows with each viewing every aspect of this film from the writing to the acting to the composing of both image and music continually filled me with the urge to shout yes this is cinema to the surrounding audience, which I'm glad you didn't, otherwise you'd be breaking crows of conduct. However, he says, being a code-compliant member of the church, well done, I kept it through a broad smile and internal glee. <laughs> One of many aspects of the film I love is Anderson's penchant for letting his actors act, for forgoing the thousand cuts per minute mantra of modern filmmaking to allow so many wordless conversations to play out between Day-Lewis, Vicky Crepes and Leslie Manville. The costumes are amazing, not in that they are beautiful, but they say so much about Reynolds himself. The dresses are tight and controlling, as is the man who made them. Free-flowing garments, these are not, with many of the women having to be noticeably squeezed in. The score is another masterpiece for Mr Greenwood, whose collaborations with Mr Anderson never failed to remind me how vital and adventurous film music can be. I will no doubt be seeing it again and again. Nice one, Grant. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, right, it is Clarice uh, Lowry and Edith Bowman. I said Lowry, sorry, Lockery. Dear me. Uh, and Edith Bowman in from Mark and Simon on Five Live. Coming up then, we've got Sasha Ronan, who talks Ladybirds. That's all after the latest Five Live news. Welcome back. It's Clarice Lockery and Edith Bowman in for Simon and Mark here on Five Live. Um, Clarice is going to review Lady Bird shortly, but do you want to just set up what the film is about before we hear from Sarsha? 
Yeah, so Saoirse Ronan plays Christine Ladybird McPherson. Uh, she's a student, in, she's in her last year of high school and she lives in Sacramento, California and she's very frustrated by all of it. She's frustrated by her hometown. She wants to go to some fancy East Coast college where the culture is. She's frustrated that she's not the cool kid so she's trying to sort of meander her way through life. Well, we're going to hear uh, Clarice's review of Ladybird shortly but first uh, I had the pleasure of catching up with the star of the film Saoirse Ronan and that conversation follows this clip. I want to go where culture is, okay, like New York, or at snob. least Connecticut or New Hampshire, well, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work, or the, or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Ladybird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Ladybird like Christine. you said you would. Just, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College, and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. That was a clip from Ladybird, and I'm joined by star the wonderful Saoirse Ronan. Hello. Hello. That clip was you throwing yourself out of a car. Out of a car, yeah. Um, how did you do Standard. it? <laughs> the huge. <laughs> That's what we all do, isn't it? Did they um, attach a big mat to the side of the car? They actually did. I'd love to yeah. say, yeah. <laughs> Why is that what you thought? Are you yeah. so pleased that you got it right? <laughs> I knew it. Um, <laughs> no, I... I was telling people for a while that I did actually jump out of a car and they were really impressed, but I couldn't keep up with the lie. Um, They had a rig around, like the whole way around the car. Mm. So there was sort of like this platform around it that you could step onto. Um, And they had, you know, because we were in America as well and they're much more safe than we are. (laughs) And so there was like four mats laid down for me and a stunt man making sure that nothing happened to me. Wow. So, yeah. It's like Ladybird Cirque du Soleil. It was, yeah. <laughs> Ladybird does her own stunts. Congratulations on this film. It's just, it's it's perfect, I think. It really is. Thanks. Everything so nice. about it and um, it, it really is. When, when you're describing it to people, how do you describe the film? What do you say it's about? It's been really difficult to try and like sum it up mm. in a few words. Um, in its essence, it's about a kid who's trying to figure herself out and she's fine doing that. Um, and I think it's also about the relationship between a mother and a daughter. Yeah. And I do think also the, the romance is between her and her best friend. Oh. So really it's about her figuring herself out and all of these relationships that she has in her world and how she sort of moves away from them and comes back to them and revisits them and learns from them. And, you know, it sounds cheesy, but it is kind of just life. It's like a th- year in the life of a 17-year-old. You I know? think that's why it's connecting with people so much is because it is so relatable, whether yeah. you're a boy or a girl or a woman or a man or a mum mm. or a dad. I think there is so much in there that you can relate to and it's so clever and Greta's writing is stunning in the way that in a sentence you can be like bent over double laughing but by the end of it you're crying you're crying yeah like that scene in there there's a scene with you and Laurie Metcalf in a, a thrift shop and it's it just felt like my mum and I you're yeah. kind of arguing and bickering and then she just holds up a dress and then even that line she says out of the changing room and you pop your head out and you go what if this is the best version I know <laughs> I know, and everyone's been there, and it's and that's why she's so good. Because also, it suits the type of film that it is. But I think sometimes so much can be over explained in scenes, and you know, there's so many scenes that you'll see where 
a character is like, I just feel like this. And we're not like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. And and I think especially, you know, in the scenes in the car and the scenes between her mother and her, there's so much that's unsaid and there's so much that's like, it's this pent up like frustration or whatever. Like in that thrift store scene where she says, you know, why are you dragging your feet? Are you tired? And it's so passive aggressive <laughs> and it's so not that. And then her voice changes when she talks to the woman who's going by. And I was like, I, you know, I remember when I was younger and my mom would get on the phone and she'd have the telephone yes. voice. And I'd be like, why do you always change your voice? Why can't you just be yourself? <laughs> just do you, mum. <laughs> uh, do you. Just do you, mum. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and that's all Greta. It's all from her. Now, I, I very much feel that she, she, well, she, she wanted you. She knew she wanted you for this part. Because you knew like she, a couple of years before you... Even yeah, about you. a year before. I think she had been looking for people and she hadn't found anyone that sort of fit. And the producer had done a few of the films that I had done and I was about to do a play with him. And so he was like, maybe we should look at search. And um, he said it exactly like that. <laughs> and they sent me the script and that was it really. And we... Greta came to meet me at the Toronto Film Festival in 2015. We had never met before. And we both just sat side to side on a couch and I was eating like a French onion soup and it was really late at night and we just read through the whole script and that was sort of like the audition, you know. The relationships feel so real when you watch them. That's what's incredible. Did you do any kind of chemistry testing with anyone? Because it's it just feels like there's no one else that could have played those parts it does. at all. I know, yeah. There was no chemistry reading. She just cast it really, really well. God, she's and, good. And actually, <laughs> she's so clever. And I think, you know, I mean, Laurie is a lovely, lovely person. So maybe in her case, this wasn't true. But I feel like for all of the other actors, we're all quite similar to the characters we play. And I only realised that halfway through the shoot, I kind of thought like... Oh, right, I get why she's cast so-and-so and and I get why she's cast me Mm because there's elements of you in it and she's just a real, a real observer. So she obviously saw that in all of us. The stuff with you and Laurie Metcalf who plays Lady Bird's mum is is really special. Yeah, it is. Did you do much work prior to filming to kind of, to think about that back story of their Mm. relationship at all or was it, or did you just kind of get on and... We kind of just got on and did it. I mean, we had about a week and a half, two weeks to rehearse, but that was also filled up with, like, fittings and all that sort of stuff. So really, Laurie and I had met up once about six months before in New York with Greta, but we just sort of had a chat and hung out, which was probably the best thing we could have done. And then once we started rehearsing, we only had about maybe like half a day and we went through everything and Laurie is such a pro when it comes to like table work because she's from the theatre and she worked and she still does perform with Steppenwolf the theatre in um, Chicago and stuff which Tracy is I think he's a founding member of so for her she was really brilliant about using the time to sort of like figure out what the trigger points would be in each argument scene and you know where we had come from and I think also both of us saw the good in our characters. So, you know, I, I think with her character in particular, you could read that on the page and go, oh, well, she's the worst or she's a villain or she's, you know, but she saw the good in her. And so mm-hmm. I think that just naturally came out and all of that love that we started to have with one another came out as well. So It's funny because I, I, one of the things that I was writing down as I was watching it was that she's, 
she's not your your usual mum character. No, there's so much that's more it. to to her than than that kind of moaning mum that you normally get on screen. Well, this is the thing, but I think it's the same with a lot of more so female supporting characters. I think like I, I've been really lucky that I've gotten to play you know, sort of leading characters in films that are really interesting and the film is about them and all that sort of stuff. But I feel like a lot of the times with supporting female roles, they are literally just like the mom or the girlfriend or the sister. And they're Fat so... Mate, yeah, 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 exactly. And there's nothing else to them. And Greta obviously didn't want to do that because she's smart and we've all seen it and we're all kind of bored of it. And Laurie <laughs> is... She's such a good, smart actor that that was already on the page. There was so much there. Like, there's so much in that character that just humanises her, really. And you understand her, even though, like, she's harsh, but you get that it's coming from a place, I think, of love and fear. Because everything's about to change, you know. Now, you've been at the Oscars where you've been nominated. This is your third nomination, is that right? Yeah. Greta's never been. Is that right? She's. I don't think she's ever been wow. to the Oscars and she's never been nominated. And That's she is the fifth woman ever. Only the fifth? In I mean, 90 years to be nominated for Best Directors. It's insane. It's crazy. The only other ones I can think of is Barbara Streisand and Catherine Bigelow. And Catherine Bigelow. And Sophia Coppola maybe for... Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation, maybe? Oh, yeah, she yeah. probably got nominated but for the that. The fifth, that's crazy. But, then, but that's it, though. There's like one other person. It's like Barbara so bad. Is she excited? She must be. She must be over the moon. She's so excited. Because well, she normally sits at home and makes a party, doesn't she? She, she has a yeah. party. <laughs> and you know what, actually? I've got it on my other phone, but she um, she sent us a photograph, loads of us a photograph, after we found out about the nominations. And it was a photograph of her and her friends when they were 15 and they were at an Oscar party. And the rest of them were in like these kind of cool clothes, cool teenage clothes. And she was in a full-on gown. <laughs> <laughs> She was in like this full red gown and she had her hair done up and her makeup done and she was like really tall for her age and like looked beautiful and was really excited. And now she's getting to go. Oh, that's brilliant. She's, yeah, she's chuffed. Absolutely. And you know what? She deserves it. She made a brilliant film. She She absolutely deserves it. So I wish she'd been given a BAFTA nomination as well. I really thought she deserved that as as well. but, um, you know, I think the film is going to get an amazing recognition. I think so, too. Anyway, and, you know, you've already won a Golden Globe. So, chill Ooh. out. <laughs> chill out on winning. <laughs> I loved, I was reading an interview with you, and um, you were talking about how, even at the age of 12, when you were doing, you know, Red Carpets for Atonement and stuff, you very much recognised then that you were getting asked the d- different questions as to what men were being asked or boys were being asked on, on the carpet. Sort yeah. Of Has that changed? Uh, yeah, everyone's terrified to ask you about your dress now. <laughs> and one person I think has asked me, "Do I have a celebrity crush?" And I just, I was like, "No, I don't." And you know, I did. This was the thing: is that even when I was a kid, I don't think I realised at the time that there was any difference in the type of questions I was being asked. Because I remember at the time, it just infuriated me, just as a person who. I, I just, without even knowing what feminism was at that stage, I just didn't want to be defined by that or by anyone else. Yeah. And I always found it really, really annoying when people would, my stomach is grumbling so much. I'm so sorry. Someone get Sasha I'm some so food. hungry. Um, um, but. What would you like? Are you going to get me something? <laughs> Go on, what would be on your list right oh. now to eat? No, to eat right now. Go on. 
We can send some popcorn. A, <laughs> a banana, a banana, in the banana, banana. Be great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you're going on. So by that no, point, you didn't know what I, feminism was. I didn't yeah. know what feminism was, but but at the same time, I I was aware that like this wasn't something I was comfortable with being asked like who I had a crush on or did I like dressing up or anything like. Because I also wasn't that kind of kid. Like I grew up in the countryside. Stomach again. Do you hear that? <laughs> I grew up in the countryside and uh, I went to a mixed school and boys and girls were just the same. Yeah. We were just, it was all the same. So to then go into a world where it seemed so separate felt weird. Before you go, Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Where are you from in Scotland, by I'm the way? I'm from a little fishing village called Anstruther, which is on the east coast near St Andrews. Okay. Lovely. So about an hour north of Edinburgh. Right. Um, but I'm, yeah. going, I'm going to Scotland later. Today? Yeah, going today. Where, where about? Uh, I'm going... This isn't going out till next week, so it's fine. Oh, right, yeah. I'm going around um, sort of like southern. Oh, oh just for, for just, a wee, yeah, wee holiday? Why not? Nice! <laughs> wink, wink. Um, what can you tell me about um, it? Because I'm, I'm so excited. About I it. hope you like it. It's, it really feels like it's for the Scots. Um, yes. It's something that I had signed. I probably told you about it ages ago. <laughs> I signed up to it when I was 18. So five years ago wow. um, was when I was asked to do it. And I've been waiting to do it for a really long time. And she's just... Mary has been so misrepresented and misinterpreted in the history books and it's because her story has always been told by the people who wanted to vilify her and finally John Guy wrote this fantastic book that was true and it was honest and Bo Willimon who created House of Cards and is really great at like um, political thrillers, yeah. he came on board to write the script, Josie Rourke directed it and it's a really brilliant cast. People like Margot Robbie plays Elizabeth and um, Guy Pearce is in it, Ian Hart, uh, Jimmy oh, wow. McCardle, Jack Loud and all these really great Scottish actors. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think Martin Jack's going to be the next James Bond, by the way. I'm just going to throw that He'd be great. Out, He'd be great. Um, he's a good one. Um, but, but we're just really proud of it. And we shot up in Scotland for about a month. And uh, then we did the rest in the studio. But. I love it. I love the Scottish people. I love the history. Yeah, when, we're really excited about it. Do you know when we're going to see it? November, probably. Wicked. Good luck. Thanks. At the weekend. Thanks. I really hope to see you on that podium. You yeah. so deserve oh. it. Well, you'll be there, I'll right? Be, I'll be waving. I always love when you're there. I'll bring some polos and lovely. things. Just gonna, yeah, yeah, I'm going to... Well, clearly, clearly <laughs> I'll have I a need banana. to eat something, I'll guys. have a banana waiting <laughs> for you. Sarsha, thank you so much, love. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, she's an absolute joy. I could just... You spent some time with her this week. You just wanted to yeah. hold her hand. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to hold her hand and cry about this film together and just let all the emotions out. She's just incredible. I love her. <laughs> Do it now. Get all the emotions out. Oh, no, I'm not. Okay, I'm going to try and hold the tears back. Um, okay. So just to note quickly that um, this is a limited release today. Uh, so it's a wider release next week, the 23rd of February. So if it's not at your local cinema yet... Don't panic. It will be. And go see it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like this, it's worth the wait. This is an absolutely special film. It's a one of a kind film. Um, it is, of course, by Greta Gerwig, who this is her first, this is her solo directorial debut. She's co-directed before and she's you know, quite well known as an actor and a writer, especially as the co-writer and star of Frances Ha, which is another film that holds a very special place mm. in my heart because yeah. I think it perfectly captures that feeling of being in your 20s and having this pressure to be a fully realised 
confused person by that point and actually having no idea what you're doing, yeah. which I've heard continues past your 20s. But uh, I can vouch for go. that. There you go. <laughs> um, and I, I bring that up because I, I do think there is somewhat of a parallel between Frances Hart and Ladybird because both of those films take these very specific experiences, but they carve them right down to the most raw emotions involved. And so... No matter if you can directly relate to what Lady Bird is going through, I think you can still project your own experiences on it. And, you know, my I think my personal teenagerhood was very, very different from hers. But I there were still moments that I was like, this is me. This happened to me. This, mm-hmm. this was my moment. And I think in that case, Saoirse Ronan is the perfect choice for this role. She's absolutely perfect because... She has this open quality to her. You can just read the emotions right off her face, but those emotions also have very deep roots. And so I think that's what's made every single one of her performances phenomenal. But I think this is perfect material for her. I I also really hope that she wins. I think she's incredible. And really, Lady Bird is a restless soul. She represents that restless soul that we have inside of us at that point in our lives. And, you know, she, she... wants to escape. She wants to escape Sacramento. She wants to escape her own life, her own circumstances, her own world. She wants to go to the East Coast College where the culture is. I keep saying that because I love that line. (laughs) Um, But, you know, what she doesn't realise through all that frustration is that she's not quite taking in the fact that her parents are really struggling financially. They can't afford to support her to go to this East Coast College. And it's starting to impact that already frayed relationship between her and her mother, you know, that feeling of wanting to disown everything, to just, you know, reject everything. And I think Laurie Metcalf is phenomenal in really capturing that sense of motherly exasperation. Yeah. Like, it's loving, but it's also extremely exasperated. And I think that's a that's an emotion that we can also... And that, you know, that notion of not being understood... Of your, yeah. of your of your mother or your or, you know of of just you just don't understand me that whole and it's just yeah. it's just done and written and played so well. But the idea that it, it, it's so loving as well. It's like I love you, but you don't understand me. And it's that scene um, when they're in the thrift store and yeah. she says like I, I know that you love me, but do you like, like me? me? Yeah. That moment just absolutely that for Gosh, me I... was the moment of the film. I just burst into tears because I think. I think everyone will have a relationship like that in their life. Um, Yeah. And yeah, it's just phenomenal. And I think this film is filled with those kinds of emotional milestones um, and just things that different people will recognise as their own. There's that element of self-obsession, of a little bit of selfishness that Mm -hmm. I think as teenagers we're all a little bit guilty of once in a while. I know that I was. Um, (laughs) Also, the idea of struggling with your identity which, you know, in this film, she kind of swings from trying to be the theatre kid to try and be the cool kid. And especially the idea that that dissatisfaction with yourself can actually end up really impacting people that you love. In this case, it's her best friend, played by Beanie Feldstein. Oh, she is amazing. She's incredible. And, and oh. she only has love to give, but there's that feeling of rejection because she can see that Lady Bird is so dissatisfied with herself that... She sort of interprets it as, oh, is she dissatisfied with me? Like, yeah. is, is is that what's going on? And that's quite a tragic, you know, she is, a, so she is the supporting character, best friend trope. But what's so different about her is that her emotions are so layered. There's so much going on within her. And, you know, she's a very special character on her own. And uh, I think as well, there's, you know, 
There's her having uh, some making some mistakes with boys. Uh, oh, and the yeah. boys in this film are played by Lucas Hedges and Timothée Chalamet, which, again... The casting yeah. is just incredible. <laughs> from, you know, from Sarsha, we've talked about to Timothy and, and, and but also the dad, Tracy Letts as well, who, who kind of gets forgotten about and he's such yeah. an important character in it. That's the thing that she's done so cleverly is there are such brilliant performances across the board from all these, all these names and they give great performances, but they're all weaved together so perfectly and beautifully. You kind of take them for granted a bit and kind of forget about them. Yeah, and it's the dynamic, I think, between Laurie Matcalf and Tracy Letts of the very, like, forward mother that she's the one who has the arguments and the dad just retreats back. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of families that have that sort of dynamic between the parents and... I think, especially Timothée Chalamet's character, I very much recognise <laughs> that sort of faux intellectual who will spend house parties sitting by the pool, reading a book and ranting about how all mobile phones are, are government tracking devices. Like, I, I know that person. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's got a Kyle in their yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard because I could just spend all day just listing off all my favourite <laughs> moments from this film. And I realise that it sounds like that, but I think that's what makes... Ladybird's so astounding is that it just feels like a, a collection of memories, like you're flipping through a photo album and some of them are happy, some of them are sad, some of them are awkward, some of them are a combination of all of those yeah. elements. And I think there's not this huge sense of internal tension. There's no great conflict. And I think that's kind of the point because there is this scene at the beginning where Ladybird says, I want to live through something. And there is this idea that we view life through the prism of these earth-shattering moments. And I think the fact that this film exists, I think the fact that this film got nominated for an Oscar, kind of proves Lady Bird wrong. It, it kind of proves that idea wrong because I think that we can be shaped as people by some of the small moments, like an argument in a thrift store, yeah. by eating all the cheese in the house with your best friend. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it can be just at any moment can end up completely shaping who you are as a person. And I think there is something very quietly profound about that. I'm I think and it's much more than a teen movie and a coming of age movie as well. There's, there's so much more depth to it. I think it's going to really stand up there as well with those really iconic films of years gone by, be it like The Breakfast Club or Pretty in Pink and things like that. It's got such... I don't know, substance to it and just such depth and importance, I think. Mm, yeah, and warmth as well. I think yeah. it just, it's so warm. We've had some lovely correspondence. I've got time for one before we, we get to some news, but we'll come back with more of these. Uh, this is from Jared, who says, Lady Bird is a beautifully written film with an honest and well-rounded female protagonist. It's refreshing to see movies like this released to a wider audience than just smaller independent screens. And so nice to see a young female protagonist not need the affections of a man to feel fulfilled in her life. Jared, thank you so much. We've got more correspondence on the way, which is great. Uh, Sarsha, what you heard there talking about Ladybird. We've still got loads to come for another Isle of Film conversation, including The Clarice. Shape of Water, Black Panther and Father Figures. Great. And please do get in touch if you've seen any of those or any of the stuff in the top 10. Email mail at bbc.co.uk uh, or you can text us at 85058. Loads of stuff still to come. Um, just this other quick one as well that came in from uh, Jesse, who says, took my mum to see Ladybird. Best film we've ever seen. High praise indeed. Welcome back. Six minutes after three is Clarice and Edith and from Mark and Simon. If you've just joined us, hello. You've missed uh, Sarsha Ronan, but don't worry, it will be on the podcast later on. And we were, well, Clarice has just 
kind of coming to so emotional about Lady yeah, Bird. I kind it's of have the same effect. everything out. Quite <laughs> rightly Apologise so. everyone. Do not apologise <laughs> ever for getting emotional about film. It's the way it should be. Uh, and this email is testament to that as well. This is from Ned. Thank you so much for getting in touch. Ned says, I'm 33, which is the same age that Lady Bird would be if she were a real person. I grew up about 40 minutes away from Sacramento, California, at exact time that the events in Lady Bird took place. I can't tell you how incredibly accurate every frame of that movie is, both visually and orally, from the clove cigarettes to the overly earnest Dave Matthews listening sessions, <laughs> with the seats all the way back in the car, the music is spot on, the posters in the rooms are spot on, and the teachers and parties and experiences she had in that movie all rang very, very true. I even recognised myself somewhat in the Timothy Chalamet character, given with the, uh, without giving anything away in the plot. He plays a floppy-haired hipster who needs to learn a lesson in empathy. It was during this storyline that the whole crux of the movie really took hold of me. Every character is a story. It made me come to terms with how much everyone else was go what everyone else was going through in my own story growing up. It made me miss my dad, who I saw a lot of in Lady Bird's dad. I guess what I'm trying to say is that Lady Bird is more than a movie to me, and Lady Bird herself is more than a character. It's something that I will show my kids one day as the most accurate depiction of my own coming of age from the Midwest of California, feeling of growing up in Northern California at that time. To both the real and the flawed friendships one formed at that age just seeing that film has helped me gain immeasurable perspective. What an amazing email. Is, I'm getting emotional again. <laughs> Ned, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, this is from Jesse DeFranco. In dealing with growing up and adolescence, uh, Lady Bird is nearly flawless. It's the kind of movie you watch and realise is bound to be a classic. The story seems deeply personal to writer-director Greta Gerwig and yet still remains universal in what it represents. We have all had to grow up and learn to let go of things that once seemed unbelievably important. Thank you very much, Jesse. Watch how it's emotional shows today. Yeah, it? it's incredible Woo! seeing how everyone's picking up on different things. I think that's what's so magical about it is I've had, yeah, friends pick up on different characters. It's not always Ladybird that strikes them. Yeah. Sometimes it's the Lucas Hedges characters or the, the Timothee Chalamet yeah. character. It's just incredible. It's what's, what I think is great as well. We're talking about Greta Gerwig, obviously. She's nominated for an Oscar, uh, only fifth female director to ever be nominated, which is incredible. It's awful, but it's also incredible for her. Yeah. Um, but I think what is great is that in the past, she's always she's done a lot of co-writing uh, with Noah Baumbach, who's her partner as well. Um, and what I think Lady Bird allows us to see as film fans is how much of her voice was in those films. Yeah, because it's like Frances Ha, you, you realise how much that is her film. Yeah. You know, if you hadn't realised before, it's pretty yeah. much a shared project between them. Greta Gerwig, I just wanted to hold her hand for the entirety of our interview. So yeah, I'd love to hold her hand cry too. <laughs> oh, right then, where should we go next? Should we do The Shape of Water? Yes, let's do The Shape of Water. Go for it. Yes. Uh, so this is the new Guillermo del Toro movie, also uh, Oscar nominated. We're very spoiled this week. Um, no, it's a good week. And so I'm quite a big Guillermo del Toro fan, so I don't know quite how much I need to defend both the concept of a, a woman slash fishman love story <laughs> and specifically just the idea that this woman slash fishman love story is achingly romantic it is beautiful and uplifting and i would genuinely suggest it as a good late valentine's day date i mean maybe not first date maybe someone you've known for a while <laughs> but i think it is yeah genuinely 
just because it has such a, a purity of intention and an earnestness in its emotion that I feel like you just can't help but buy everything about it. And it takes place in this sort of slightly gritty, slightly dreamy version of 1960s Baltimore. It's all these greens and blues. And so it does feel like it could take place in an alternate version of the world that exists at the bottom of the ocean. And <laughs> it stars Sally Hawkins as a cleaner at a scientific laboratory. And uh, she uh, she uh, witnesses this specimen being brought in for study. And it is the fish man, who is basically the creature from the Black Lagoon, but with better abs. Um, and <laughs> at first, you know, he seems vicious, he seems dangerous, but over the course of the film, they they sort of develop this very special connection and they fall in love. And uh, I, I do want to congratulate just Doug Jones in the role of the fish man. I mean, he... <laughs> good abs, <laughs> Doug. Yeah, very good. <laughs> I mean, he's played quite a few of Del Toro's most famous monsters mm. from... Uh, Hellboy's own Fishman, Abe Sapien, to uh, the Pale Man and uh, the Fawn in Pan's Labyrinth. And I think even under all those layers of makeup, you out still beams that classic romantic lead. You know, the, totally. the brooding sensitivity is still there. And I think, you know, what Del Torre is so good at is, is that he just creates a bond between them that is so powerful. You know, this is the very transcendent version of love. This is the all-consuming love. And I think that's how he kind of gets you on board. It's less about trying to convince you that this fish man is is one to fall in love with. <laughs> it's more that the love between them is so powerful that you go, yeah, yeah, I not? accept it. Like, why? Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, and uh, I think, yeah, it, it's high fantasy. It is kind of improbable. And I think the, the best way to view this film is very much as a fairy tale, and I think that's the mode that uh, Del Toro Lodge operates in as a filmmaker. I think uh, he uses the universes of horror, and but I think his aims are usually a lot more sentimental or romantic. Uh, for example, Crimson Peak, which, you know, there's this whole argument over Crimson Peak. Is it horror? I think it's far more of a gothic romance. Yeah. Or um, Pad's Labyrinth is quite folklorish, I yeah. would say. Um and I think this is pretty much taking the context of a creature feature and then just telling this very straightforward love story. And I like I, I don't want to do it a disservice by saying that it's basically Beauty and the Beast, but it, it it kind of is because you have the princess without a voice, which is Eliza, because she is mute in this film, and yeah. that's how they describe her. Um, and then you have her beast which is the Fishman. And you even have this Gaston-like character in Michael Shannon's villain who yeah. is fair of appearance but monstrous of heart. Yeah. And so, you know, it it does have that simplicity of emotions. It has that kind of fairy tale morality to it. But I think, you know, it, within that simplicity, you have the room to really amplify emotions to the maximum. So this is all about... You know, the big, the big emotions, the all-consuming emotions. And this is the idea that love is the salvation to a lonely world. And I think everyone in this film is very lonely. I think, you know, Eliza's obviously lonely because, you know, she's communicating in sign language, but she kind of feels that not everyone around her can quite understand what she's really trying to say. Yeah. And you have her best friend, uh, Played by Octavia Spencer, her, um, called Delilah, who I think we can listen to a clip of her right now and then I'll explain afterwards. Okay. I made Brewster pigs in a blanket tonight before leaving. 
boy, he just ate them up. No thank yous, no yum-yums. Not a peep. Man is as silent as a grave. But if farts are flattery, honey, he'd be Shakespeare. And then I get home, and I make him breakfast. Eggs, bacon, and butter toast. I butter the man's toast a lot. Mm-hmm. Both sides, as if he was a child. And I don't even get a thank you. You'd be grateful, because you're an educated woman, but my Bruce, all he had going for him was animal magnetism back in the day. <laughs> Hadn't worked in a while. What in the Sam Hill? Lou, you boys mind putting the trash in the can? That's what it's there for. Oh, I love her in it. Yeah, and so you can tell from that, you know, she's kind of doing the talking for both of them, but... When she returns home to her husband, it's like, you know, he barely acknowledges her. And so I think from that perspective, she's also very lonely. You have her neighbour, played by Richard Jenkins, who is isolated because of his sexuality. And there is that deep well of sadness there. And I think, you know, even Michael Shannon's character, the villain, is isolated because... He sees himself as being above his present circumstances and, and he feels alienated by his surroundings. And so, yeah, I think... There is this simplicity to the film, but I think there is also just a profound kind of, I don't know, there's just a, a beauty and a, and a largeness of emotions yeah. that is quite moving. You suggested that it was a good film for a, for a, a date film. Um, it's definitely not a film I would suggest to watch with your in-laws, uh, which I did. There's a scene, I'm not going to go into detail about it, but there's a scene very early on in the film that involves Sally in a bath. And uh, we'd deliberately not kind of read much about the film before we watched it. And it was one of those really awkward situations where you're like, oh, what have we put on? What are we about? What am I about to watch with my mother and father-in-law? And th- but thankfully, that kind of was not a main focus of the film and making it uncomfortable sort of thing. Yeah, I should um, point out, this is a very like adult fairy tale. Yeah. I kept mentioning Beauty and the Beast. Like, it's yeah, it's yeah, not appropriate. Yeah. There is, there is singing and dancing in it. But <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but it's very different, yeah. But it's it's so beautiful. And like you say about, it could almost be set in that because of the tone of it and the, the, the colours that he's used. You kind of almost, it could be set under the ocean, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I realise that I've described Ladybird and Shape of Water as both profound. And I, I kind of think that they are because both of them, it is that kind of simplicity and, but you take so much from it, which yeah, I yeah. think is, I like to see an, Os- an Oscar film, I guess. Yeah. Well, we've got some uh, great emails actually have come in. Uh, Anna Nixon. Hi, Anna. The film was a captivating fairy tale set in a highly stylized world. The story was beautifully told and by the midpoint had me believing in the unbelievable, a true love story across species. In fact, as a child of deaf parents, the most unbelievable part was that a neighbour and colleague of a mute character bothered to learn sign language and to such a proficient level. This is a very rare occurrence in this world. We'd definitely recommend, but those of a squeamish nature should be where some moments of pretty grim violence. Yours, Anna Nixon. But that's the kind of thing we'll get with um, Grandma, isn't it? It's that, that there's a beauty but also a darkness to, to, to what he does. And he yeah. manages the two so brilliantly together. Yeah, so uniquely it's, yeah. brilliant. It's such a consistency across all his films as well, which is really interesting because mm. it just seems to be his world perspective yeah that, you know the grotesque and the beautiful can live together in in one space yeah uh, Thomas Uden hello one of the things that I always love about his films is that Del Toro takes elements of childhood fantasy then twists and molds them into something far darker far more thought-provoking all the while maintaining the sense of fantastical wonderment the uh, so 
as no one is calling it, is no exception. A beautiful, warped, touching piece that strikes at the very heart of what constitutes love and humanity. It's rare that I go to see films a second time so soon after I first see them in the cinema. But I look forward to returning to this next week and getting lost all over again in the vibrant, brilliantly twisted mind of one of the greatest ever directors. Thomas and Norwich, thank you very much. Uh, This next one is from Julia Russell, who says, After the Oscar nods, I was looking forward to seeing the film and was not disappointed. The Production, acting, makeup, script, and music were all outstanding. The opening shots, in particular, are beautifully executed. However, as the film progressed, I had a strange time or feeling of deja vu. Is it just me, or does the story in the film remind anyone else of a certain 80s movie starring Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah? I know the director Del Toro has said he has been dreaming about this film a long time. Some of the scenes were virtually identical, bar the fact that the creature in this film is green and scaly versus blonde and taily in said 80s film. What do you think? I mean, yes and Flash. yes and no. no. I think there's similarities, but I feel like the tone's quite. And I think you know, it's a it's a classic fairy tale, so I think there's a lot of things that have been picking up those same themes. There's no so. screeching in this one. Yeah, yeah. I would say like yes and no. Yeah, uh, Matt Anderson. Hi, Matt. He says I've just left a preview screening of The Shape of Water with a happy sigh and a heavy heart. Del Toro has made his masterpiece. The Shape of Water is a mature, fantastical romance with a nostalgic key lime slice of the Hollywood B movie class which we know he loves. It is a beautiful story that explores broken people living in a hostile world, reaching out for a connection. Thank you. Henry Wilson, hello. Uh, I was lucky enough to catch a preview screening of The Shape of Water in Glasgow and it's definitely one of the best films I've seen in the last year. Sally Hawkins' performance is absolutely exceptional, conveying so much emotion through face and body language alone. And there are fantastic turns from Octavia Spencer, Richard Jenkins, Michael Stuhlberg. Can we No, Michael Stuhlberg, can we just say, from this to Call Me By Your Name... I love him even more than I already did. What yeah, a phenomenal actor. About his eyes oh, and his eyebrows, that just, just that part of his face is heartbreaking. Oh, and the ever-watchable Michael Shannon in another fantastically villainous role. It was particularly refreshing to see female sexuality featured prominently and positively, and those parts of the story were handled tastefully and indeed very humorously. Uh, and then finally, we have got um, Matthew Jones from Ireland who says, Dear Clarice and Edith, Ever since I saw Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth over a decade ago, Guillermo del Toro has been one of my favourite filmmakers, so much so that this past October I travelled from the Irish Midlands to the Odeon in Leicester Square so that I could attend an early screening of the Mexican Wizard's latest spellbinder, The Shape of Water. Having gone to such lengths to see the film, I was equally ecstatic and anxious, hopeful that he would deliver on the praise it had garnered thus far, but nervous that I was setting myself up for disappointment. Alas, the Shape of Water is not one of Del Toro's better films. It is his best film. Yay! Oh, that was such a good idea. I was worried for a second. I was like, what? Del Toro has delivered a spellbinding fairy tale about the invaluable power of empathy, the bonding force of musicals and the horrors of intolerance. Every player here is truly special, but Sally Hawkins is quite a revelation. Richard Jenkins is impossibly lovable and Michael Stolberg continues to cement his position as one of the most phenomenal talents around. Profoundly sincere, surprisingly funny and teeming with so many beautiful touches that only Del Toro could conjure up. This is a marvellous work and crucially one that radiates with an immense generosity of spirit. 
Thank you. Oh, that's lovely. Sally Hawkins as well. We haven't really mentioned her in terms of the whole awards thing as well because yeah. what a year. Maud, this and Paddington too. And I think her performance in this, the oh. the way that she expresses all the frustration of not feeling heard and there's just so much passion and urgency in everything she does. It's Even in the way she signs. Yeah. It's kind of like the emotion comes out through the way you can feel the emotion in her signing. Yeah, there's one particular scene where she's talking to Richard Jenkins and, and she's trying to, to say, list, like, read what I sign and just it's phenomenal that scene in particular all right shape of water in cinemas as of today um Black Panther then um now this was out midweek is that right on Tuesday uh, and we've had some correspondence and then we'll we'll hear from you Cleese in a second this is from Alex in Finsbury Park who says my girlfriend and I saw Black Panther last night at the Odeon Cinema in Covent Garden to a packed house we both loved it and while we disagreed on Michael B. Jordan's performance, we both thought the character of Killmonger was superbly written, complex and sympathetic. Not always the case for Marvel villains. His pain had meaning, his motivations made sense and while he was undoubtedly cruel, uh, we could understand why. I also thought Ryan Coogler included a fine job of creating a world that felt fantastic and yet real, connecting the fictional nation of Wakanda to a very non-fictional history of European colonisation and imperialism. Special shout out to Letitia Wright, can we just give her like loads of yes. awards now? I want to see her in every Everything. Marvel film now. Yeah, Ever. uh, she plays Shuri and Winston Duke as Mc, uh, Mka, Mbaku. Mbaku, I think that's how you say it. Who were both utterly charming and often hilarious screen presences. I hope to see more of it in the future. Uh, we'll get one more, then we'll come back to these in a second. This is from Sophia. I've always been proud to be a black woman, but watching this film made me feel even prouder. Such positive role models, a great storyline, and wonderful messages. Smart, funny, great landscapes, plus fantastic action and set pieces makes this one of the, my favourite Marvel films of all time. I cared what happened to the characters and enjoyed the little black in jokes. I felt like this film really got me and spoke to me and couldn't believe it's a superhero movie. I grew up reading comics and never thought this would be one that would get made as I thought a black superhero wouldn't be considered lucrative enough for Disney. I, for one, am glad they took the risk and produced this wonderful film. I'll probably see at least once more. Who am I kidding? I'll probably give another two more viewings at least and hope this is the first of many Black Panther films. Thank you Marvel and kudos Disney. Yeah, I think that that's wonderful to hear that because I I didn't want to speak on behalf of, you know, what it feels like to be represented by that film. um, You know, it is phenomenal that it is a major black superhero, a black director, a majority black cast. And there's one thing that I did kind of want to centre on and it's the idea also that it's very Afrocentric and it's specifically drawing on this idea of Afrofuturism, which has plenty of different definitions, but often black artists define it as an ability to celebrate African heritage without the burden of colonialism, but also to be able to imagine a future where society doesn't seek to limit them. And what I found particularly powerful and and incredible about Black Panther is how uh, the director Ryan uh, Ryan Coogler managed to bring all those ideas of Afrofuturism into this one complete unified vision. I mean, it's the visuals, it's the soundtrack, it's the costuming, it's the characters. Everything just connects so well together. You have the African designs with, you know, futuristic elements. And uh, so to just explain the plot really quickly, this is the first solo outing for uh, Black Panther, the 
character, aka T'Challa, who's played by Chadwick Boseman. Uh, so we first saw him in 2016, Captain America Civil War, uh, where he inherited the role of the Black Panther and uh, King of Wakanda from his father. And so this film sees him returning for the first time to his kingdom. And Wakanda is this fictionalized African nation where, partially due to the discovery of vibranium, which is also fictionalized super metal, that it's sort of allowed them to be the most technologically advanced country in the entire world. But they've made this very crucial decision to hide it for their own protection. And so he's returning home for the first time and he now has to face face some enemies that are there to threaten his sovereignty. And those are the characters played by Michael B. Jordan and also Andy Serkis. Uh, And I think in those characters, in all of the characters, there are such complete character arcs. Everyone has an internal conflict. They have some sort of decision that they have to make that really, really affects them. And I think particularly the women are phenomenal. That trio of... Denai Gurria's uh, Koye, Lupita Nyong'o's Nakia, and also Letitia Wright's Shuri. They're, they're all these very different characters. There's the, the stoic warrior, there's the heroic one, there's the uh, tech genius slash wisecracker comic relief. And it's fantastic to see that variety as well. And also, to return to one of the emails pointed out so well, uh, Michael B. Jordan's character, Killmonger, um, is one of the most fantastic villains I've seen in a it's long time. Man. Yeah, and I almost hesitate to call him a villain, yeah. I think, because although there are actions that clearly define him as a villain, I think the place that he's coming from is such a real place, such a justified place that it's not really about good versus evil. It's about two different perspectives on the same situation, and it's about what sacrifices they're ready to make. And I think, you know, that as well just comes back to that idea of Afrofuturism. And this film is not afraid to ask those big questions, to have those giant conflicts within the film. But at the same time, it's not something that's overwrought. Like, I I feel like I'm making this film sound like very grim and very serious, but it's still got that lightness to it. It's still got humour. It's still got the action scenes, you know. That's what Ryan Coogler and and Nate Moore, the producer, have done so well. they 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 have put all that into this film and made it so watchable, so entertaining and such yeah. a great f- film. Yeah, and it, it's such a perfect balance, I think. You know, it never swings too much one way, it never swings mm. too much the other way. And I think, yeah, I'm just astonished the fact that he managed to bring so much, so many different elements all together, just this one complete vision, very centred, knows exactly what it's doing. It's still a Marvel film, it's still fun, but it stands on its own, absolutely. And it's amazing to think that Ryan Coogler has come from you know, Fruitvale Station, Creed, to this. That's yeah. incredible. And just, it's as if he's been making blockbusters for decades. Like, yeah. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, totally. Uh, this is a great email from Anne. She says, I really enjoyed this film as a middle-aged white woman. I'm not sure I'm really the target audience. Colour and age aside, this film had some great role models for women. Strong, independent and pivotal to the plot. It was great, full of action, dark deeds with good overcoming evil, as always with Marvel. However, I felt it could have done with some serious editing as it took way too long to get to the point. I like a backstory as much as the next person 
Martin. Uh, to sum up, good but no cigar. I look forward to another outing for this hero. Just hope they learn from this one. I fear not, but we live in hope. Uh, ben says, um, fresh out of screen of Black Panther and judging by the chatter I heard from my fellow audience members as we left, I think you'll be getting a mixed bag of response to this. Interesting. One of my personal joys of watching comic book movies is retelling them to my seven and four-year-old daughters at bath time the next day. However, on this occasion, I'm going to have to work. Uh, have my work cut out for me. Nothing happened. What a dull film. Wow, really? Oh. The cast, did you go in the right cinema? Yeah. The cast, the setting, the music, the visuals are all great, but that counts for not if the story is not engaging. The relationship between T'Challa and the main antagonist had the potential to be emotionally engaging, but it wasn't given enough space to develop, and for me it just fell flat. On top of that, I don't know how we were supposed to be invested in the final battle scene when it consisted of good people carelessly killing each other for no plausible reason. I only hope it does well enough at the box office that it doesn't put studios off making more super superhero films without white male leads. Uh, ben in Cheltenham, thank you so much for your email. Um, another one from Clush, just quickly. Um, here we go. Dear Badass Sisters, Nakia and Okoye. We'll take that, can we? Oh, I like thank it. You. I don't know which one's which, but um, I'll say that later. You can, you can choose. <laughs> Being a British-born Indian of the 80s, I never fully uh, understood the current drive for equal representation in the media of race and gender. I grew up seeing the hero, a US male, villain, a Russian, token female, a gorgeous blonde, drug dealer, criminal, black male, terrorist, male brown skin and a Middle Eastern accent. Despite such a twisted representation, I don't feel I've grown up into a Russian-hating, womanising racist. So why the need for equal representation? Black Panther provided the answer resoundingly. The movie bravely showed me images of culture, gender, equality, dialogue filled with diverse accents, questions of heritage and politics that I've just not seen told in a story in such a way. Oh, and it's a great comic book action movie as well. Thank you so much for your email, Kush. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, right, still to come then. Uh, Clarice, what are we going to review still? Uh, we've got reviews of Father Figures, You Have No Idea How Much I Love You and Detective Chinatown 2. Right. That was the title of the film. I wasn't just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Plus TV movie of the week. Edith and Clarice in for Mark and Simon today. Uh, time for a TV movie of the week. Um, we've had lots of guesses as to what you're going to pick. Ooh, okay, we'll see, see how well they know you. Yeah. Paul Slade says, Phenomenal range of films this week, including two of the greatest comedies of all time in Young Frankenstein and The Lady Killers. The Third Man is an amazingly clever film noir. A magic mic is deeper than I expected. I'll be watching It's Frankenstein. Uh, Karen Richardson, my pick would be Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, an historic cast. Theme still relevant today, and I defy any self respecting woman not to fall in love with Sydney Poitier. Hopefully, Clarice will pick this as well, if only to encourage those who haven't seen it to check it out. Ian Smith, Napoleon Dynamite for me. Oh my God, oh. I love this film. <laughs> Mainly because during this week, uh, that includes Valentine's Day, we need a film next week that I love and my wife can't stand. Uh, Gareth says, Third Man is the best, my fave movie, but Clarice will go for Young Frankenstein, which is also superb. Steve Collier, I'm going for Blade. As I was having a conversation with a friend last week, last night, sorry, post Black Panther, and was reminded that there has already been a great Marvel franchise, albeit not in the MCU, with a lead played by a person of colour. The sequel was even better. Uh, and Gordon Winter says, I haven't seen The Third Man, which I will put right this week, so I will vote for Young Frankenstein. Terrific cast, Wilder, Feldman, Khan, Leachman, and a wonderfully funny film. Yeah, I think people largely guessed what I was going to pick. I mean, Third Man is a classic, obviously. I think for Magic Mike and Blade, I maybe would have been more inclined to pick them if they were the sequels of both yeah. ones. Um, so yeah, it is Young Fran Frankenstein, just because I remember being sat down in front of the TV as a kid and being told, 
this is what comedy is. Like, this is comedy. Yeah. It was Young Frankenstein. It's my favourite Mel Brooks, I think. It's just, it's a mess. It's a master class. And I think every, this, it's, everything is so inspired by that film and by all of Mel Brooks's work that yeah. I just... Young Frankenstein. No one mentioned oh, Eight Mile. I loved oh. Eight Mile. I, I went to cinema twice to see it. Second time I went, I printed out the lyrics for Lose Yourself so that I could sing along in the closing credits. I mean, who do I Just, think? Who does that? Me. That's please. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was too young to go see it when it came out, but I remember I also printed out the lyrics because yeah. everyone did. Um, young Frankenstein is eleven fifteen uh, on BBC Two on tomorrow night, Saturday, PM. Did that make sense? <laughs> Fifteen PM tomorrow <laughs> night on BBC Two. And if you did fancy Eight Mile, uh, ten o'clock tonight on ITV4. Wow, there you go. Lose yourself. Go on. In um, the moment, the music. <laughs> yeah, here we go. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next up, we have um, So Bad It's Bad. So here are some suggestions, okay? Okay. That's what people said. Mike says, anytime... <laughs> Shut up. <sighs> I always get this wrong. Sh- but what? Correct, but yeah. what? I've got to say it really slowly so that I don't curse on the radio it's mentioned I honk with laughter for that reason alone it must be the truly awful P.S. I love you Uh, Gerard Sweeney says that's fighting talk as far as my wife is concerned P.S. I love you is one of her favourites Jeffrey Dean Morgan and an Irish accent leaves her in a puddle Michael Michael Chappell but Casino Royale's wonderful a psychedelic experience with one of the finest soundtracks in existence Ian Johnson says Aaron Paul was amazing in Breaking Bad and has since gone on to make a series of abysmal film choices with Need for Speed definitely first on the grid. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Come on. Alvin and the Chipmumps. Chipwrecked. Chipwrecked. (laughs) Which I have less to say about the film itself and more to say about that title. It just, for some reason, the titles of the Alvin and the Chipmunks movies make me furious because I just think who... Had the arrogance. Come the on. Arrogance and the confidence. To what come about out. Road Chip? I just, that makes me even angrier. How many times have you seen Alvin and the Chipmunks chipwrecked? I mean, once. I mean, I've seen it. I'm in double figures. <laughs> I've got a four year old and a nine year old. I have no choice in the matter. Oh, no. Chipwrecked is a regular. If you haven't seen it, it's on tomorrow afternoon, 2 50 um, on, I don't, on Five Star. Here we go. I'm not a band in the 80s. Uh, right then, let's move on, shall we? Um, TV movie of the week done. TV movie of the week. So bad it's bad done. Does that link into father figure or not? I, I mean... I, so bad it's bad? I don't so know. bad it's... Yeah, I guess so bad it's upsetting. Oh, wow. <laughs> but in a different way. Okay, look. Okay, I need to explain this okay, very... Because I did expect father figures to be... One of these, oh, the boys, they're having some hijinks, look at them go movies, you know, just kind of Purell humour. And it absolutely is that. Okay. But also there is this air of sadness to the film, which I don't think was intended. I really didn't like it. I was genuinely a little bit put off, upset by it, oh, um, wow. concerned offended? by it. Not offended, just more concerned because... The, the pitch is that you have Ed Helms and Owen Wilson are playing these twins who are opposite personalities. Ed Helms is very uptight. Owen Wilson is very laid back. And they find out from their mother, played by Glenn Close, that who they thought was their father was actually a complete fictional construction. And uh, what actually happened was more of a Mamma Mia type situation yeah. in which she's not quite sure who the father is. Ooh. So they go off on a road trip to fi- try and find him and... Uh, cameos ensue including by jk simmons I'm, I'm not quite sure why he's here but we do have a clip of him so let's listen so what 
What are you doing here? Is everything okay with your mom? Everything's good. We're on a quest. And I'll just cut right to the chase. Did you know Lenny between April and May of 1975? No, we're like in a biblical sense. Uh, yeah, 75, that sounds about right, yeah. Why do you ask? We think we're your sons. Your boys. Me and Pete. You're our dad. Would you just excuse me for a minute? Wow. So, yeah, I, I, maybe you can't tell fully from that clip, but my issue is that Ed Helms's character in this film is not comedic, I don't think, at all. Um, <laughs> so he is a divorced father whose own son hates him. He leaves his own mother's wedding to go watch Law & Order SUV in the dark, which I find very concerning. Oh, he sounds like a spoiled brat. Yeah, and also... When he finds out that his um, father wasn't real, he basically created his whole life around this fictionalized father who supposedly died of colon cancer. So he becomes a proctologist. And like the realization that he's wasted his entire life is absolutely devastating to him. And so I just was not amused and more genuinely concerned for his well being during mm. this film, which I think. You know, this film has quite a few dark beats to it. There is a genuine moment in which it gets so sad that a character has to go, oh my God, this just got really sad. Like, that's the kind of vibe of this film, which I think can work in a lot of different comedic contexts, like yeah. more of a Little Miss Sunshine kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it doesn't work with a film like this in which really the only reason the film wants him to be a proctologist is so that they can make jokes about it. And they do a lot of jokes about it. It is an endless continuation of the same three jokes over and over again at or nauseam. And there's a lot of jokes as well aimed at Glenn Close and her love life, which I feel it feels slightly treasonous to yeah. be making jokes about Glenn Close. It's Glenn Close. Why would she sign up for something like this then? I, I don't know. I genuinely, there's something very bizarre and off about this film. And when there are comedic set pieces... They have no logic to them. Mm. Just they, That's not how people act. It's as if the people who wrote this are actually aliens who came to Earth and are trying to integrate into society by writing one of your human comedies. <laughs> it feels like that. Nothing feels quite right. And I don't know if it's to do with the fact that this was actually filmed two years ago and... It had very Already poor. Dated. Yeah, it had very <laughs> poor test screenings, so they went back and reshot a lot of stuff because. But the result is this bizarre Frankenstein quality of very crass stuff, quite genuinely upsetting stuff, and then stuff that just it's, makes no sense. I mean, I, I, it makes me think about a film with a with a male duo on a kind of road trip vibe that worked. Due date, do you remember that with Robert Downey Jr. and Zach oh, Galifianakis, yeah. and it was funny, and it was kind of. It, there was a slight concern because it was off the back, you know, off the back of the Hangover and stuff, and you're kind of like, have they just put Zach Galifianakis in another role like the Hangover? And they kind of did, but it worked because you had this. It, it didn't didn't rely on so much of that kind of gross out, really kind of predictableness to it. It was, it had a bit of something to it. This just sounds like it's really predictable and dated. Yeah, and just odd, just funny odd. at all. No, oh god, absolutely not, <laughs> not to any degree. <laughs> oh I'm my sorry. God. Okay, I'm all sorry. right. What's it called? Father Figures? Yes, Father Figures. Did he find out which one's the dad? 
Was that? I, I mean, would it okay to give it away? Just in case, in case someone would happen to want to see this film for some reason, I won't give it away. Okay, uh, we've just had a couple of um, emails in. I'm just going to get to them quickly before we move on uh, to the next film from Andrew. Uh, I'd like to comment on Shape of Water. I've never seen uh, a bigger load of boring rubbish this year. Badly acted with a boring script. We almost walked out. Oh dear. Oh no. I'm not sure why you sent us your, your actual address and we were not going to refund you. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's <laughs> not our job. Come to that. Come see Ladybird instead then. Uh, saw Ladybird in the US. Loved it, laughed, cried, recalled my youth and related to my teenage daughter. I'm a 46 year old man and never thought it would touch me as much as it did, Tony in Bristol. Hey, cool substitute teachers who let you sit next to your friends. Great to hear the interview with the fantastic Sasha Ronan. Can't wait to take my daughter to see the film. She wants to go. To show her everyone has issues with their parents but get through it hope this will be the film that gets my daughter into cinema as long as she is code compliant Aww. it is the film that you want to bring people to I'm, I'm already planning to see it, yeah, I'm already planning to take so many different people to come see it oh man uh, we've got another film to talk about actually about mothers and daughters I don't know if you want to talk about that next or if you want to do yes yeah, should yeah. I do it next okay, um, yeah. so well, yeah go ahead it's called You Have No Idea How Much I Love You, which I keep getting confused because it's the name of the song in Shape of Water is You, you Will Never Know yeah, How Much I Love You. Yeah. So I'm sorry if I get them confused at some point. Um, but yeah, it, like Lady Bird, it is about uh, fractured relationships between mother and daughter. But this is actually a documentary by uh, Pavel Lezinski, where it's a series of meetings between a mother, a daughter and a therapist. And it is essentially therapy. It's watching therapy and it has the same sort of structure as therapy. It's sort of the breaking down of the walls, the breaking down of the defences, and then they get them to their most vulnerable point. And then there's the intense emotional climax where all the emotions sort of come flowing out and it's the there's guilt about a divorce, there's the feeling of uh, projecting pain onto another person. and Loneliness. Yeah, and there's a really nice moment where the mother describes her loneliness as the groke, which I looked it up and it's the arch enemy of the Moomins, which I oh, thought wow. was quite sweet. Because quite... they're, they're Polish, aren't they? They're, yeah, yeah, and I don't know if the Moomins is very popular in Poland, but yeah. I don't know, I thought it was a, a very interesting moment and an interesting way to, to think about it. Um, but, and I think we disagree slightly on this, I felt a little distant distance from it because it has this clinical nature to it because it is a therapist and you as a therapist have to be slightly clinical about things and I think the film sort of echoes his mood almost because everyone's very isolated there's only one person in a shot at a time yeah. and the therapist very deliberately stops the mother and daughter from talking to each other he says you know talk to me project your emotions on me yeah. which it felt more like a case study, like you were studying something, but then the film doesn't really come to any radical conclusions because it is dealing with very common emotions that we all kind of recognise. And so it's interesting. It's the opposite of Ladybird, where it's very common emotions, but you immediately connect with them. I think this is very common emotions, but I felt more like an observer, I guess. Yeah. I started watching it and I didn't think I was going to be into it but it, it I was I got hooked very quickly and it does this clever thing I think which I think obviously is deliberately where you have the they have different sessions over a period of time you're never told the distance or the time between each session and all it has is like a black screen in between the sessions which is up there for a, just a slightly uncomfortable length of time where mm. you're kind of even so it, it, it's an emotional thing almost kind of like where it's physical where you're kind of going is this 
is it finished? <laughs> Just the end of the film. Do I need but, to go? <laughs> but, yeah, but it's but it's really. I think it's a really clever thing. And the guy, um, Bogdan, I think is his name, who's the mm. therapist. I mean, he's amazing. I could just watch his face the whole time. Yeah, I I want him to go to him and get therapy. <laughs> he seems really good at his job. Get him in the next time we're on yes, the show, please. please. <laughs> That'd be amazing. But there's not much else we can say about it because mm. there is a thing to it. And if we talk about it, it kind of yeah. it explains too much. There's a revelation at the end that I think it changes everything and for me I was kind of put off by it but because I wish it was information I'd been told earlier and I think it just added to all my feelings I had about it before but I think yeah I think I I had the opposite yeah where I kind of I I watched it last night on my own on the couch and I I kind of like I gasped you know it's kind of and it's kind of stuck with me as well since I don't know maybe it's because I need therapy who <laughs> um, But that is that. Where, where can people see that? Is it out? Is it on um, general release or is it? Yeah, I think it's very, very limited selected release. Limited yeah. release. So I think you might have to look for it, but it'll okay. be out there. You have no idea how much I love you. Which is the title of a film. We're not just expressing our love to each other. Quick email that came in from John Meekin in Nottingham. Dear allocated seat interlopers. Like that. Last week I visited my local world of Sydney with the missus to see Fifty Shades Freed. Please don't judge me. Marriage is about compromise, or so I have been told. But that's not important right now. On arrival, my wife referred to the ticket confirmation on her unfunny fruit-based device and located our seats immediately. There we sat, some of us eagerly awaiting the film and some of us trying not to pay too close attention to the advertising that you could describe as risky, featured, appropriate, possibly more risky than the actual film. Two ladies entered the screening and were clearly having difficulty finding their own seats. They tried the ones adjacent to us and had to move when they realised they were wrong. They tried the ones down the end of the same row. These transpired to still be incorrect and the ladies were eventually told to move by other patrons who had no patience for a delay to get their Mr Grey fix. I then spotted a lesser spotted usher who had bravely left the safety of his warm corridor. I asked him to help the pair who were by this point politely distressed in a very British sorry for bore than you sort of way and seemed resigned to watching the film while standing awkwardly in the aisle. Surprisingly, the usher was finding it difficult to locate the seats in his own cinema and resorted to checking everyone else's tickets in the row. Well, of course, it turned out to be me and the wife who were sat in the wrong seats. Ah! If this were one of Simon's confessions, it'd be seeking forgiveness from the two ladies who were very embarrassed, but not from the usher, who should have been there much sooner, and certainly not from some fellow cinema goers who were simply rude. We were the problem all along, but I'd like to thank, I think we handled it politely, which sadly doesn't seem to be the normal approach. Unfortunately, my wife found the correct seats, so we had to watch the film in the end. Ah. That sounds more thrilling than the plot of Fifty Shades Free. <laughs> I was hooked. Yeah, oh. Exciting! It had a climax. It had a twist. It had everything. Villain? Who was exactly. the villain? The anti-hero. <laughs> um, right, we've got another film to talk about, I believe, Clarice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so this is Detective Chinatown Two. So obviously there was a, a de- Detective Chinatown One, um, which is another buddy comedy, actually. And the first one paired, as is actually described in this film, it is the partnership of a genius and an idiot. And so it's a college student named uh, Chin Fung. I'm sorry if I pronounce all the names horribly wrong. Uh, I speak no Mandarin. Um, But he is essentially, he's very similar to the BBC Sherlock, the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, which Mm -hmm. actually happens to be wildly popular in China. So I think they took a few of the visual tricks from that so he can imagine maps and words floating in front of him 
and a very un-Martin Freeman-like distant relative as his partner called Tang, who is a clownish, sex-obsessed swindler. And so the first film was quite successful, and I think clearly with this one, which is directed by Chen Shichung, uh, they're trying to reach a more international audience here. And so it's set in New York City. Is They bought the rights to a Taylor Swift song, which was clearly quite expensive, so they play it about five times. Oh, my God. And also, um, Michael Pitt is in this film, as in Funny Games, Michael yeah. Pitt. Um, and I'm not sure. I think no one told him it was a comedy because he's still slightly in Funny Games mode. Um but yeah, he's in it. And so the plot is essentially the, the pair come to New York City and they are teamed up with the world's best detectives to solve one particular murder case. And from that point on, it has this slightly it's a mad, 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 mad world vibe. It's completely hyperactive. The characters are very surreal. There's one of the detectives is a, a small British girl. And there's also a pair of like ghostly twins, uh, two of the other detectives. That's and like Scooby-Doo. It's a little bit like Scooby-Doo. It's, yeah, that sort of hyperactive and, and its idea is to throw as many jokes as possible your way so that eventually one of them will land. And so <laughs> I would say this film does actually pass the six laugh test. Okay. Even though most of the jokes are not good. Quite a few of the jokes are quite distasteful, um, but still there's enough jokes that are funny that it passes the test. I, And it is extremely wacky, but I think it does set up its parameters quite well. So I wasn't bored. I wasn't lost. Yeah. Um, and it has some great slapstick in it. So I think, you know, it's a comedy with quite a few weaknesses, but I think there's something to enjoy in there at least. Will you be queuing up for Detective Chinatown 3? I maybe won't queue, but if I see it and it's there, I might approach it. Uh, All right, there we go. Detective Chinatown 2. Thank you to Emily in London, who's been in touch as well. Dear Lady Bird and Lady Gaga. Can I be Bird? You're happy with being Gaga? Gaga. Right, perfect. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Pan's Labyrinth, and the trailer for The Shape of Water looked like the film would inhabit a similar world. So I went to see it last night with high expectations. I wasn't disappointed. In The Shape of Water, both magic and human reality at its bleakest sit side by side. Sally Hawkins was enchanting as the innocent yet strong uh, Eliza. Is it Eliza or Elisa? Eliza. I think think it's Eliza. Eliza Eliza Esposito. Yeah. And the water creature had much in common with the creatures in Pan's Labyrinth, which are neither cute and cuddly nor monstrous. Octavia Spencer's supporting role was also a standout and provided some of the film's humanity and comedy. It's definitely a strange film with many unexpected twists and turns, but I enjoyed every minute of the slightly surreal experience. I believed in The Strange World, which was beautifully visualised, and I believed in the characters. I'm glad Del Toro made this film, and I don't think his fans will be disappointed. I'm now planning to re-watch Pan's Labyrinth as soon as possible. Oh, that's that's the result you want. It is, isn't it? It's kind of Because this might well be, for a certain age of film fan, their first introduction to Del Toro's work. Yeah. What yeah, order would you encourage them to watch his films? Uh, I think Pan's Labyrinth is still his best. And yeah. also, I think this might have been discussed last time I was on, but I'm a great advocate for Crimson Peak. Me which too. I know a lot of people disliked, but I will fight for that film till the end of my days. I think it's incredible. Um, I'll hold your coattails on that one. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I thought it was great. Uh, Hi, Katrine. Now, not sure if this is too late as I'm a few podcasts behind, but just wanted to say how much I enjoyed Black Panther yesterday. You're not. We're live. It's fine. Perfect timing. Yeah, not a Marvel fan, but had a child-free day off. Oh, So for a Valentine's Day treat, my husband and I took the chance to go to the cinema. After walking 14 miles from Clanelli to Swansea, uh, do we have public transport? But you have to earn your treats. We quickly took our seats and relaxed. Relaxed. 14 miles is amazing. Film was good, fun, and as were the characters. Um, code was observed by all, and we stayed until the very end, as did some others. Definitely recommend it. Yeah, don't forget to stay till the very, oh, very end. For people the... do this at press screenings, and I'm like, you know it's a Marvel film. This no. can't be the first time you've come to a Marvel film. I forgot. <gasps> I haven't seen the extra little bit. Oh, no. So you can tell me when we finish the show. Okay, I'll tell you. you. promise? Yes. Okay. Um, amazing. I, it's been so much fun. Thank you so much for today. It's been oh, great. What's you. going to be your film of the week then? It's going to be Lady Bird. Aye, brilliant. Of course it is. Uh, out in cinemas everywhere from the 23rd, we should say. Uh, thank you for listening. It's been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Uh, thank you for listening. Next Friday, 2 o'clock, Simon and Mark are back with special guest Margot Robbie, who also stars in I, Tonya, but also produced it. She's wonderful, as are they. That was this week's show. Um... There we go. Loads of stuff in there. So many great films and a couple of stinkers. Uh, Should we talk about (laughs) DVD of the week? So it's been a hectic week full of Olympic sports, pancakes and romance. Uh, So no doubt you'll be wanting to reset your batteries, detox your bodies and close up your hearts by sitting alone in a dark room for a few hours, enjoying a brand new DVD release. Lucky for you, Clarice and I are here to pick the very best new film and re-releases to join those hallowed shelves of DVD of the week. Uh, Thank you very much for your correspondence. Blake says uh, from the list, Once Were Warriors is a powerful and impressive film debut from New Zealand director Lee Tamahori. I think so, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm really <laughs> bad with names. Who can forget the incredible performance by Rena Owen as Beth, the strong Maori matriarch whose steely resolve in the face of unflinching domestic abuse really sticks in the memory. A special mention also for Tamara Morrison, whose portrayal of Beth's abusive husband Jake never ceases to amaze, almost 24 years on from its original release, not to be missed. 24 years, man, alive. Damien Allen, I have a massive soft spot for Happy Death Day. Sure, it's I Know What You Did Last Groundhog Day, but Jessica Rose's delightful performance turns a very average teen slasher movie into something hugely enjoyable. She's definitely one to watch. Emma Askew says Once Were Warriors, amazing film. Real pathos that shut up uh, Buttwad. I just can't say it. There's something, it's, it's almost like a physical thing that stops me from saying it. Shut up, Buttwad. Should watch and learn before punching Weather in the Face and more recently punching Thieves too. Peter Walker, Geostorm. So bad it's brilliant. I'll take Once Were Warriors though. Uh, Ian Lambert says, Miss Film Review, you could have saved money. I gave you all the clues. No, I'm not going to buy the snowman either. But as someone who used to be a climate scientist, I can't see it making me quite as angry as Geostorm. Eddie Arthur, there may have been some better movies than Ice Cold and Alex, but there aren't many. And John Cronin, Once Were Warriors, should be the pick. A smart, thrilling drama with a great soundtrack. Encourage folks to see this gem. Clarice, are you going to encourage people to see it or not? Yes, um, I'm absolutely not picking Geostorm or The Snowman because I like people and I, I don't want them to see it. <laughs> oh, 
so yes, so for new release, I I wanted to pick After the Storm, which is by Hirokazu Kurida, and um, it's. Quite a sweet film. It's about this author who's very down on his luck. He's very kind of stuck in his ways, and he's a bit of a gambling addict. His uh, father's passed away. He's just got divorced, and uh, the lead actor, the guy who plays the author Hiroshi Abe, has this incredible, uh, just sort of slightly pathetic look around. It's what I call Bill Murray face, if that makes sense. Just this yeah, yeah, constantly yeah. miserable look about him. <laughs> um, but it has this sweetness to it, and I, I think it's a really lovely film. And then for re-release, I am going to pick uh, Once Were Warriors. I think. Okay. I, it's just incredibly incredible how moving it is, and it. I think what really makes it work as well is that even though it is an absolutely harrowing film, it's about you know poverty and domestic abuse and you know alcoholism. It's yeah. about a whole you know the loss of tradition as well in the Maori community. Yeah, but there are still these very small little moments of joy in it, mm-hmm. which I think is so much more reflective of what life is like. Even if you're in such an absolutely unmanageable situation, there's still going to be little moments there that you feel happy for a blissful second. And I think that's what really makes the film work for me. Amazing. I'm going to just make a mention for Chubby Funny as well, which I really liked, which is a little mm. independent film written and directed and starring um, Harry Mitchell, who plays Oscar in the film. It's a really lovely little film. Really kind of quite excited for him as a filmmaker to see what direction he goes and whether he continues to write and direct and star or whether he kind of picks one and focuses on that. Because mm. on all three, I think he's done really well yeah. with his first outing. It's a good week for independent films, not so much for the big studio releases. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Geostar. Sorry. It's don't, don't. You want to apologise? Okay, I will. Um, we mentioned this at the start of the, the show, in fact, when we were talking about the mercy um, of the passing of Johan Johansson, incredible uh, composer uh, and musician. We got a lovely email from Andy in Middleton, Wisconsin. Uh, he says, I grew up as a devotee of movie scores and the maestros that composed them, Williams, Alfman, Newman, Horner, etc. And I find myself equally devoted to the new classical genre. Johansson belonged to both. He was part of a vanguard that composes amazing music, sometimes doing it for movies. He was distinct among them because of one amazing trick he turned. Each of his scores sounded like it belonged uniquely to the movie and still belonged only to him. You can listen to any of his scores as if it were a concept album of his and hear his DNA everywhere. Listen again with the movie in mind and you can feel the story flow through it. This feels like the pinnacle of movie music uh, and we are now robbed of decades more of it, not to mention more of Johansson's other recordings. Uh, And here is one of them uh, from The Theory of Everything. It's absolutely heartbreaking this because there's so much more that I wanted to see from him. I think there's so much more, so many more films that he could have done. And what always really struck me about him is that ability of of balance. Like in Arrival, he could both capture that alien feeling to it and also the importance of a a mother-child relationship. And that all came through in the music. And as well, the idea of balancing the more uh, soundtrack musical elements and also soundscapes, which... My favourite story is um, about the making of Mother with Darren Aronofsky and he'd written this full score for it 
And then they sat down and watched the film together with the score and they realized together mutually that it yeah. didn't work. And I think to have that generosity of spirit to go, no, you know, the music isn't the most important thing in this situation. And what actually, you know, is in the film now is this very, very subtle use of music and soundscape all combined together. And yeah, I think that just it's just a nice story that really represents who he was, I think. And, and you know, we have got more to come, which is, is, is you know, a small blessing in a, a tragic situation. And he composed the music for Mary Magdalene, uh, Garth Davis' new, new film starring Rooney Mara and um, Joaquin Phoenix. So we have that to look forward to. But incredibly sad news to, to hear last week of the passing of Johan Johansson. Clarice, thank you for your time this week. Thank you. Simon and Mark will be back next week. Uh, they'll be with you two o'clock on Friday with Margot Robbie on the show.